Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. On today's episode, we have Peter Evans, Artistic Director of Bell Shakespeare, who has been in the role since 2016. Prior to this, he was Co-Artistic Director of Bell Shakespeare from 2012 to 2016, and before that, Associate Director of Melbourne Theatre Company. From stepping into the founder's shoes to navigating government and immense competition, this is the extraordinary story of an artistic director who reluctantly asked not once but twice to finally achieve a permanent home for Bell Shakespeare. Succession, vision, uncertainty, then Care Nielsen and a nutshell. This is the story of Bell Shakespeare's $3 million gift. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have dedicated your career to the arts and to storytelling. I understand you were born in Melbourne and grew up in New Zealand. Tell me about one of your earliest memories of feeling inspired by what you saw on stage. Growing up in Christchurch, we did have a very successful local theatre, the Court Theatre. So I was very lucky we would go to the theatre, I would, I would guess, six or eight times a year. I was actually more taken with the American comedies and the farces than I was by the Shakespeare at the time. The Shakespeare wasn't quite my cup of tea. However, the Shakespeare I got from school, and I was very lucky to have one teacher in particular who inspired me with Shakespeare. So mine was actually from the text out, strangely, rather than performance when I first. But then once I got to university and I started seeing some productions, I started to understand what it could be in performance. But initially, my inspiration for Shakespeare was actually from the text. Oh, that's wonderful. You studied at NIDA and worked as a freelance director for a number of performing arts companies. I've been reading about what seems like an elegant succession plan for Bell Shakespeare, joining its founding artistic director, John Bell, as co-artistic director in 2012, and then artistic director in 2016. What did following John Bell as artistic director of Bell Shakespeare mean to you? And how did you step into those shoes and make them your own? Well, that's probably still in process, actually. It's very difficult. Following a founding artistic director, and particularly after 25 years, is very, very difficult, I think. And I think we all understood the pitfalls and potentially it being a difficult task. I was helped because I'd known John since the end of 1995, and I'd worked with the company as a freelancer over 20 years. So I felt like we had a really good relationship. I also made it clear when they first approached me that I would only do it if I was John's choice. I made it clear at the time that it was not the kind of position I thought you applied for. I thought it was absolutely up to John. The board had also said to John, you know, this could end with you. If when you're finished, this this is over, then that's fine, that the company and what we've achieved is amazing. But John himself was very keen that it continue. And I guess that's, you know, more than half of if we've achieved any success in the succession is because John wanted it and he's been so generous with making that happen and allowing me to take over. 
but I think it took at least three years and it's now I'm in my fifth year. It was at least three years before I felt any sense of having my feet under the table. And really, even in this disrupted last couple of years, I've just started to feel like I know where we're going. For me, it's, it took at least, it's been three to five years to feel like I'm the artistic director proper. Wow. It's fascinating the history, not only through John Bell's legacy, but the legacy philanthropy has played in the company. As I understand it, John Bell was approached by the late Anthony Gilbert to set up a theatre company devoted to Shakespeare with a $70,000 gift in 1990. Now, eventually the federal government kicked money in and John Bell's quoted as saying that the hunger for chasing private and corporate support made Bell Shakespeare a model for other arts companies. What do you see as your role as artistic director in terms of leadership and philanthropy for the organisation? Well, the advantage we've had was that it was built from that gift. Everybody who came on board in in that first decade understood that it needed to be privately and corporate needed to keep the thing going, even once the government kicked in. So in its very DNA... There was an idea that it was owned by anybody who supported it at any level, led by Tony. And although that was clearly difficult in the early years, I think is actually the great strength of the company now is that it is in its DNA. It isn't a company that's had to find that out. It's just been understood. And I've always understood that a company like this, even though I've worked at at most of the major companies, at a company like Bell, the relationship between the artistic director and the supporters and the friends and the donors, all the different ways that we can talk about them, has always been a big part of it. And that's why the succession plan was so long, that I came on board at the end of 2010 full time. But I knew an awful lot of the supporters and and the donors through the 15 years earlier. But the idea was that they would get to know me and that it ended up, we didn't know how long it would necessarily be, but it ended up being four years, nearly five years by the time John stepped aside. So that was central to it, was that the stakeholders, if you will, which in in Bell Shakespeare's case is largely about donors and corporate, they would support the succession so it's always been very clear to me how important that relationship is. The other side of it is that that's the great joy of the company is the relationships in it. The relationship with the audience and the relationship with the supporters is actually what makes it so great. You're not just sending work out. You know and know well the people you're making the work for. And that's fantastic. That's, that's, a, that's a great thing. And those relationships are long and deep and people feel they have an ownership of the company. And that's, as an artistic director, that's great, particularly when they're happy. But if they're not enjoying the work you're making, it can sometimes not be great. That's what you take. You take the good and the bad. You do. I uh, spent a little bit of time working at Sydney Opera House when we were building their first philanthropy program. And one of the challenges was trying to embed a culture of philanthropy within a state government institution. And I think that how you speak about as part of the DNA, it's, I think it rings so true. And also a founding organization, those founding donors, they have that sense of extraordinary ownership. I would imagine, do many of those original founding donors continue to support Bell Shakespeare? Yeah, there are a handful. And there are people who who have been supporting John since he was a university, as in 
going to see his work and loving what he's done through, through his whole career. And so I, I certainly get a great deal of pride that they still want to support and they still feel that the company represents John's vision, even though it's obviously we've gone in different directions in some areas, but fundamentally it's still the company that they helped set up. It's very important to me. I think what you're describing would be very difficult because if people have got to enjoy something that somebody else has paid for, I think it's very difficult then convincing them that in fact now they need to start paying for it if they want it to to, to keep going. I can't think of a more difficult task than what you're describing at the Opera House. Universally, fundraising is not easy within any organisation and there's different and unique challenges. What's mm. interesting about Bell Shakespeare is that you've never had a permanent home until very, very recently. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The idea of having a permanent home came up in the late 90s. It was actually Bob Carr who first started talking about it. And it was talked about in Parliament that we would get a maybe a space down at the wharf. So it's 20 odd years ago, but it just never happened. We were lucky enough to have offices. We've been in our present office for maybe about 15 or 17 years. And we've had a rehearsal room for about that long too. So previously we were bouncing around from space to space, which is very difficult. We've had a couple of spaces that are separate, but we've never had one space. And really we've never had a fully accessible space and we've never really had a play, like a home in which we could invite people to at all. So when I joined, we thought that might even happen in the first few years and certainly hoped it would happen before John stepped aside. But as it happens, it will happen at the very beginning of next year. I still touch wood, but it looked like that going to happen. For our listeners, that will be 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. So I want us to move into the Infinite Space Capital Campaign for Pier 23 in Sydney. And now it kicked off in 2016. Can you tell me a little bit about why this campaign was so important to the company? Well, there's two parts to it. One is actually the revenue that we have to raise in terms of our contribution to the building and to the fit out. There was a chunk of what we had to raise is actually what we had to hand over to get the keys and also to fit it out. But then, of course, a capital campaign, you want to be able to set yourself up for the stuff that's going to go into it and to allow you to make some work going forward. And that, again, is where we came up with Infinite Space. It had to be about more than bricks and mortar. It had to be about the company going forward. And as you've mentioned, we'd never had an opportunity to run a campaign at this scale. So we knew that we had to be ambitious with it and use the opportunity. So when we set it up in 16, we would have been thinking that's a two-year campaign, I suspect, maybe three. The project, of course, has just kept moving and moving and moving. So it ended up being four to five years. But because it's about the future vision of the company, I don't think it's, it hasn't felt like it, it can't be renewed. And in fact, I think this campaign will end up sort of going on indefinitely in a way. It, fe it feels like a, a really nice campaign where you can contribute to the future of the company um, indefinitely. Well, it fundamentally represents who you are, isn't it? And securing your future. Originally, you needed to raise $4 million, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And it was kicked off with a Commonwealth government grant. Mm -hmm. What were some of the first things you as an organisation, as an artistic director, did to embark upon this campaign? Well, really early on, we could tour the space before they started working on it. So we did a lot of site visits. 
and took everybody we knew, including it was one weekend I remember early on where the development team had me down there, which really just kind of opened the doors to anybody who had ever expressed interest. So it was a lot more kind of general public than even necessarily donors who had given significantly. But we really just gave people a tour and therefore were able to talk about the vision for the company. Because one of the things that we get is we get some spaces that can be front-facing. We finally have places where the public can come, one being a studio theatre and the other room being dedicated to education so students and families can enter. And so laying out that vision for the company and what it will mean to us and being able to do it on site, I think was really important. And then as the designs happened, we were able to talk quite specifically about what it was look like and what the contribution would be all the while painting a picture for how it could help Bill Shakespeare and and how it could help us go into the future. In early stages, you had a number of your board members contributing to the campaign. What was the expectation from the beginning about the role of the board? We don't have that American model where, in fact, everybody has to contribute and there's a dollar figure. And we've always recognised that our board, sometimes people's contributions are not financial at all and that people don't necessarily have capacity and their contributions are in some other way. And I've always really supported that. I thought I thought that the board can't just be about um, wealth, that in fact we need a variety of voices and that, and that making sure that your board does have a variety of voices, I think, is an ongoing project for any arts organisation and certainly important for us. So there was no expectation, certainly with any dollar figure, but there was an expectation that a contribution, and that, again, might not necessarily be financial, but that everybody was on board with the Infinite Space campaign. Those that did have capacity were tapped quite directly and specifically. And so they were in the weird position of advising on how we should make approaches and then being approached themselves. But we did that with the level of humour and, and grace. But also, it was, I think it was important for the board members and the development committee, etc. to we needed to show willing and to get the number kicked off so that what came next looked achievable. This was a learning curve for me, but that's philanthropy 101, I think, is to, is to, is to start with a reasonably large contribution from the people you know, and so then the next bit can get as much more achievable. Absolutely. And it's a great demonstration of leadership and, and backing a campaign, which I would imagine was particularly important when there were a number of other arts organisations out there in the marketplace. As I understand it, the Wolf Precinct project more broadly, different arts companies were housed in the precinct, were asked to raise different amounts of money. So the Australian Chamber Arts Orchestra was asked to raise about 20 million, 5 million of which also came from the Nielsen Foundation, which we're going to get to with your gift shortly. Mm. But how did you navigate such a highly competitive, time-bound fundraising environment? I think you'd probably need to speak to the team about taking that kind of pressure on. I guess I felt that our proposition was unique and that while there were other organisations and there's a lot of crossover between them, that a lot of our supporters are also ACO supporters, that there's a a lot of people who support both those companies and other theatre companies and other organisations. But it felt to me that they would support both. I, I thought I couldn't see any reason why they would necessarily choose. And I think that's that's been true. Mm. 
And I also felt that our vision and our relationship, and, and maybe this was naive or even solipsistic of me, but I've always felt like we could tell our story and that our story would communicate and that I actually, on reflection, I've always felt reasonably confident that if we didn't necessarily get to the target and because the target, I think, was an ongoing thing, I always felt we were going to do, you know, get a pretty large number. Certainly, I had no worries about, you know, the nuts and bolts of what we had to raise. But I'm sure the team was much more conscious, as you say, about what the environment was like. But I didn't take any of that on. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, because that my next question is, how did you make Bill Shakespeare stand out? And is it because you were out there in the marketplace with a fundamental belief in your own vision and the vision of Bill Shakespeare? Yeah. I mean, the big difference for us is that we've never had a a theatre. That would make a, a big difference to us. And wouldn't it be lovely to come and sit? You know, if not even for shows, but for all of the other events we can do. And we're a Shakespeare company, so there's an awful lot of things that we can do around the outside of the shows. Half our business is education, and I don't think it'll be any surprise to your listeners to know that that's really where an awful lot of the philanthropy comes, is that even if they are coming to all the shows that you see in the opera house, that the thing they really love and want to contribute to is to education. And so being able to invite people into that space, which we have done in our rehearsal room, but as I say, have a fully accessible space and really be able to open those doors up, I thought was a pretty easy sell, actually. And the other thing about us is that we're national. And so, in fact, one of the trickier questions was, this will not make us more Sydney-centric. We're very, very aware of that and very aware to make sure that we're national and, and, and particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, where we have a lot of support. And in fact, it's built over the last decade in Melbourne was to make sure people saw that this was an engine room for our national ambitions and that it wouldn't, you know, inside that misting, I was very conscious of that and very keen that, that it wasn't seen that, yes, you should come and visit. And, and of course, the way people move around Australia, you should absolutely visit, but to emphasize how it would help the work nationally, I think was a really important message that maybe some other organizations down at the wharf didn't have to do. I think that's right. When navigating these competitive environments, it's really having clarity of exactly your unique offering and the national scope of your company and the education part, which you just hear through and through from so many people who love the arts, but so many philanthropists who are passionate about the arts. So many give to education at Bell Shakespeare because they really believe in its impact. Tell me, in the 2019 annual report, apparently 2.83 million was transferred into infinite space reserve and a number of those major donors were board members. So you had a level of success. However, the campaign then stalled. Tell me about that. Why did the campaign stall? I suppose there's two factors. One, one is the obvious and that we had tapped all of the people who were closest to us who had capacity. And that what was meant to be a two to three year campaign, that's the end of it, really. That, that's where you've probably, I'm, I'm sure the strategy at the start was we'll, we'll, it'll go over two or three years and these are the people we're going to tap and then there'll be a whole bunch of others, which I, I think we were very successful at getting. And I felt that that was a pretty good number. But I suspect at that point we had run out and then the project got pushed back. So the messaging actually became quite complicated because it was quite hard to go and say, this thing we've been talking about, in fact, it's still happening, but we've lost some momentum, we don't know. And there was a point around there where we feared that it might fall over, in fact. 
the whole Walsh Bay precinct was in jeopardy for a period there. And I guess that's why I didn't see the campaign as stalling, is that I felt like we paused a bit mm. and just to make sure that we knew what we were saying and when we were saying it. And if and when it came back online, we wanted to be able to talk specifically. There's a number of people, and I don't think I'm talking out of school, but as we start to talk about Keir Nielsen, he would be one of them who are suspicious of contributing to government projects. And so I certainly didn't want to contribute to the idea that this thing was woolly or uncertain. I felt like while there was uncertainty, we should stop talking for a bit. I think this is a really valuable story for our listeners and for the sector to hear because so often we hear, like the Art Gallery and various others, these enormously successful campaigns that you look in hindsight, and of course, they're always going to be successful. But when you're in the thick of it and you have so many different stakeholders and particularly government players, it can be challenging to navigate. And too often, arts companies and other for-purpose sector organisations find themselves having to navigate really challenging circumstances and timeframes being pushed out. So your solution was just to go a bit quieter and keep your donors closer. Was that right? So we told everyone what was going on. I mean, there was things in the press. And as with all these things, you just be as completely transparent Mm. and honest as possible. Because the campaign was all about our future, the message coming out of our supporters was, look, yes, we want this thing to happen. And yes, the bricks and mortar is important, but our contribution will stay within. I don't don't think we felt like we were in jeopardy with what we had raised so far. And in fact, I mean, it's interesting when I say how much things change, but now that I'm talking to you, we started looking around just in case we might need to find another location. So there was a little bit of concern. The ambition to get a home never changed. We Mm. just always felt like this was the best solution and that we should hold as tight as possible and really make sure that the government, you know, fulfilled its promise to us. And I, I can't remember. I do remember it being very stressful for quite a long time, but very quickly you forget about that and it suddenly got back on track and they started building and it was all happening. But that, I mean, it's interesting actually just the other day, Maybe six or eight months ago, we were doing a tour there and I'd said to one of my colleagues, I'm standing here, what's wrong with me that I can't feel a kind of joy? And we realized it's because it's actually been quite the stress of it and the fear that it's going to fall over is that even as we stood there and we could see that the thing was coming together, we couldn't allow ourselves to accept it. And I guess that was one of the hardest things was that we were selling this thing and talking about this vision and it was so central to everything that we talked about for two years. And then it just looked in jeopardy for maybe six months to a year. And so even when it came back on, we were quite scarred by it. But again, this is why you have your supporters and your donors and stuff because they all jumped back on and were very supportive. And and in fact, we were just sort of reinvigorate the campaign and you know, here we are five years in and already I've started to forget the, 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 more, the more difficult aspects on the journey. Until I raise them, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that just demonstrates the resilience of your leadership and the resilience required in these campaigns because there are wonderful moments of success, which we'll be coming to in a moment. But there, there's also deep troughs of pain throughout it. And that's that sounds right. like a long one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But the prize... Is so big. Yeah. The prize is literally once in a generation that this is the most important thing to happen to the company other than its founding. 
and the opportunities and also the pressures, which I've spoken to you privately about, is the pressure coming with that opportunity is huge. But you must also see it as an opportunity and the huge privilege that it is. It's It's a big deal. And so holding firm to that you know, really, there's no other choice. Absolutely. So let's shift tack for a moment. I want to come to the success story that is Bell Shakespeare's largest philanthropic gift to date, which was $3 million from the Nielsen Foundation. And ultimately, it was to support the flexible studio and theatre space at Pier 23 within the Walsh Bay precinct. Now, tell me about Bell Shakespeare's association with Care and the Nielsen family prior to this big gift being announced. I'll tell the story very personally, because what I want to stress is that there is an awful lot of moving parts that happen within the philanthropy team inside the development team that I don't think I'm going to do justice to. So this is very much the artistic director's view of that relationship. The philanthropy team had this fantastic idea of starting what were called unquiet occasions. This was Zoe Copton-Jewett, who was head of development at the time, came up with this idea. And it's basically, it's a, it's a Jeffersonian dinner, which are like salons where you, where you have a topic, you have a dinner party. We had them for about 10 and 20 people and there would be a topic. And, and the, so the dinner party was, in fact, everybody talking to a specific topic. And I think it was the first one we did. And it was, a, it was an engagement thing, but also a highly interesting and really smart idea. And because people are interested in Shakespeare, people are interested in education, you know, it just fit. I thought it was a very smart idea. And so my first interaction with care personally was at one of these dinners. And and we would most of the time we would have topics like tell us the influence of a specific teacher on your life. And I think that was the topic then. And I was sitting next to care. And as an artistic director, I have to admit, I am not very cluey about who people are. And I think maybe this is sometimes helpful. So I have no idea what people's capacity is. They're just supporters of Bell. And so their conversation is very much from starts at that level. And so my first understanding of care was actually a very personal story he was telling about being at school in South Africa. And so that was our relationship really, is that that he would come to opening nights and we would talk about Shakespeare or or about his interest. And I don't know if it had happened before then or straight after that, but the foundation started supporting our education with an annual gift, which my memory was that kind of came out of nowhere, that it wasn't asked for that a phone call came through that basically said, we're really, we love, we love what you're doing. So Care runs the foundation with, with his daughters, Bo in Paris, and we love what you're doing. Can you send us something, you know, something very top line? And we did. And then we started getting an annual gift. And so the engagement really started from that. I think that's still going on even. So that, that's over a number of years. And the thing with that foundation is, and the thing with Care is that, He is very suspicious of, I think, bloated bureaucracy. And so it's kind of the best sort of partnership for a relatively small organization for us because when he gives, he's decided he trusts the organization, he trusts what you're going to do with it, that you're not bloated or you're not, that the money is going where. And his particular interest was juvenile justice. But there are no strings attached. There was nothing. It was, it was, we love the juvenile justice. We love the education. And in terms of reporting, was it actually not very onerous at all. 
Now, we do a fabulous reporting system that's actually a, a beautiful document that talks specifically to where the money's gone and what it's done. And we take that very seriously. And I think the foundation really loves reading that. But the sense is you don't have to keep proving we really love what you do. And so we want, you know, use the money to make that happen. And so that relationship was established initially through there, which, which was, you know, wonderful and continues to be. So that was really very much about building trust and building the relationship. I understand they began giving to education in 2016 to build, and there's been over about a million dollars supported. I love this quote from Care. They seduce me, the buggers, because as a family, we've always understood that good fortune is often just luck. And that was about their support of the, the juvenile justice program that you run. How did you shift from conversations and and bear in mind the philanthropy team, no doubt, did a lot of this as well. But in terms of your role, shifting the conversations from a program, an education program to capital support, how was that navigated? We just had a meeting about how this was going to best be communicated. So what's important to know is that there was an initial ask that didn't actually come to anything. And then there was a secondary ask. So there was, it was, it was about three years between the initial ask and then the gift. So Zoe started it and then Deborah Reinecke, who's now head of development, took it on. But the initial ask, we just sat down and went, how should we communicate? Um, She, I'm pretty sure, would have asked her, can we come to you to talk about capital? We also had some board members that were very close with care. And so there was a discussion was that, was that, can we come and talk to you? Then we had a meeting, should we go? Our feeling was, and I don't know if this is true, but our, our instinct was that he's not the kind of person that's interested in having five people sit in his room and kind of pitch at him. Again, because I, I think he would think that was overkill. Again, this is just an instinct, but it felt like we should be completely clear about what we want the money for and completely kind of upfront about it. And so it was actually decided, and I I think I pushed back at this initially, but Zoe and Jill, our executive director, decided that I should do it alone. I should make the ask. So I think there would have been a supporting pitch document. We would send that after I would go in and I would do it alone. And, and I don't know whether that's, as I say, it didn't amount to anything after that initial ask. It felt, even though I was frightened and it was way outside my comfort zone to do something like that, I saw the logic in it and it felt for an organization of our size that if we're going to ask for an awful lot of money, that the artistic director should be the person to lay out the vision. I'm in two minds about that. I think sometimes it's quite good for somebody else to lay out the artistic vision. That sometimes that, that that message can be, you know, a bit easier than me, you know, feeling a little bit like I'm kind of blowing my own trumpet. But anyway, the proof's in the pudding. And certainly our relationship and my relationship with care has been lovely along the way. So I don't think we did any harm, but the initial ask just came from me and it didn't amount to anything. So tell me about the ask that did amount to something. What happened then? So it was just, we were, we obviously still connected because we were still coming to events and coming to shows and there was still a contribution to education work. And I think Deborah said, can we come and have a chat to you again about capital? I think she said, I know Peter spoke to her a few years ago. Care didn't seem to remember or was kind of was a bit vague about whether that had come to anything. So I, on reflection, I think our timing was probably wrong and that I think we asked for 
too much. And I think we just didn't quite have the relationship, but he didn't take offense at it. You know, I think it just didn't work. And so when she said, can we, you know, the project was obviously looking more likely Mm -hmm. now, it was all happening. Can we come and talk to you? And he said, yes, of course. Then as it happened, we had another strategy about what we would do. And it was decided that in fact, Deborah would go, I think with Jill. And then in the end, in talking to Care, he said, look, I actually know you all. I really know what you do. Just send me the prop and then we'll talk about it. So tell me about the moment when you found out he said yes to a $3 million gift. So I was in the office with Jill, actually, and I knew that we had sent it. By this point, you just really have to move on and forget about it. I'd done this enough. And the prop actually had two levels. There was a 3 million level and a 1 million level for two different ideas. Before we pushed send, I was like, I'm pretty sure he'll go, I think a million. And I think last time we asked for too much, I think this feels about right. But then I was in a meeting with Jill about something completely different. And Deb came in completely white as a sheet and said, I've just got this extraordinary email. And the email was extraordinary. It was very beautiful, very beautifully written, very generous that basically just laid out how much they'd love to be a part of the what's going to be the Nielsen nutshell. And they're going to support to a level of $3 million. And it was unbelievable. Like it's an unbelievable, it's a completely out of body experience, really amazing. It's amazing. It's such yeah. a wonderful story. For the listeners, they can't see my face and my hands are clasped <laughs> because it's just so exciting, those moments when you find out it's happened. So this is the largest gift Bill Shakespeare has ever received. Yeah. How did the board respond? Oh, they were completely knocked out. I mean, a number of them know care quite well. And so they were just knocked out because it's extremely generous. But it was given with such sort of eloquence and grace too. As I've said to you, when you and I have spoken before, the money's obviously important. But in fact, the generosity with which people often give money is in fact means an awful lot to you. And it's a, it kind of confirms that what you're doing is important. Yeah. And it can sometimes feel like it's not. It can sometimes feel that, you know, and with the world's larger problems, you know, are we actually making a difference? And so when somebody does and they and they explain to you why they give, it's very, very moving and really gives you energy. And that's what it, when I wrote back, when I wrote to thank care, that's really all I talked about was the energy that it gives the company. Because then we got all the staff in one room and explained what had happened. It actually makes a material difference to the way we're going to work. Yeah. And that's not all always the case. Sometimes you're raising money basically to keep going. Whereas this had some ideas attached to it to do with a to with a kind of temporary ensemble that will actually change the way that I work and the way that I can approach the work and I think will make the work better. So it's not just, you know, the, the, the money is actually changes stuff. Yeah. And so it gave the company enormous energy. Incredibly, that board meeting, we didn't tell them until the end of the board meeting. I remember, again, we strategized about how we were going to talk about it. And we did it in the middle. I think we had a couple of board members who were leaving. And I remember having a a meeting with Jill. And I said, we can't go at the end because that'll top their leaving. We have to kind of do it before that so that we can celebrate our board members And it was probably mostly virtual when we did it too, actually. But it was pretty cool when you can tell your board that you're blowing the target by like, you know, a million and a half or $2 million. (laughs) That would have been a pretty good day, a pretty good board meeting. Absolutely. 
I think it's it's such an inspiring story and it's so important to share also those moments when it felt like it wasn't going to happen. I think many, many people in the arts have asked for support and not been successful, just like your first meeting with care. But the lesson is just to keep going, because if you hadn't asked again, you wouldn't be in this situation now. So that's what I have to say is that left to my own devices, that would never happen. That is only through that I've been very lucky to have development teams, but led by two extraordinary people who have sat me down and had to deal with me complaining and going, I feel very uncomfortable and saying exactly what you just said, that we've got to do this and it will work and it will make a difference and just have been very supportive about me being me and doing my thing as much as possible. But it is not something I feel is not natural for me. It's way outside my comfort zone to ask for money or to even toot our own trumpet. So what you say is absolutely right. It's, It's tricky. It is tricky, but it also demonstrates that really important role of multiple leaders in an organization, the artistic director, the executive director, the head of fundraising, and of course, the board, which is why the podcast is how we raised it, because it's not a singular person. What advice would you give to other arts leaders or artistic directors in supporting them or guiding them in securing mega gifts or multi-million dollar campaigns? What do you think was one of those critical elements that was so important to your success that you would advise others to do? Well, the most important thing is having a clear vision, I think. And I and, and, and we, the present sort of custodians of Bell Shakespeare, have been very lucky because uh, the company has, has always had such a clear mandate and such a clear vision. And it's something that we're constantly honing and trying to refine and try to articulate better. If that is incredibly clear and you also believe in it, if it moves you to talk about it, and that's one of the benefits I've got is that when I talk about what we do, I moved by it. And that means a lot to people. They can see. And in fact, all of our all of us that work there are. And so when we have a team of people at an event, and we're very good at everybody in the staff and all the actors talking with people, you wear a very open company, you can get a lot of access to us and to the artists. And if an artist works with us, they know that they're going to be in a lot of rooms talking to a lot of supporters. And people buy into that because it's delightful and it's, it's a lovely thing to do. But people see that we're really moved by what we do and we really believe in it and they want to be part of that. So I think if you're lucky enough to have that and you're able to articulate that and you work on articulating it, it's easier the more you believe and the clearer you are. But you do have to work on it, on how you articulate that vision and, and the dreams you have for the company. Then, in fact, although there are many days you don't want to do it, the rewards are, are almost immediate because you know people want to be part of that. People also want to be part of these things that we make. Well, congratulations on this extraordinary gift and on extraordinary leadership that you have demonstrated both artistically and in terms of philanthropy and fundraising, however unwilling you may have been at times. (laughs) It is a wonderful, wonderful story of resilience and courage. So thank you very much for your inspiring story, Peter. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Oh, what a wonderful story from Peter Evans and Belle Shakespeare. I thoroughly enjoyed that. My three key learnings from this story are one, 
Philanthropy and donors are fundamental to the very existence and community of Bell Shakespeare. Their presence is felt throughout the company, from the acceptance of the new artistic director to sharing plans for the future to battling through the challenges of COVID. They are genuinely part of the world that is Bell Shakespeare. To secure these extraordinary gifts, you have to ask. You must have the courage to ask at the appropriate time for the appropriate amount in the appropriate way. And even if it doesn't work the first time, like Peter explained, you must have the courage to continue to ask. If Bell Shakespeare had not asked for a second time, this $3 million gift from Ken Nielsen would never have been realized. Three, discomfort around fundraising is real and it can be understandable. But this is why it is important to have a team around the company driving this, not just the fundraiser or just a CEO or artistic director, but a board as well, to support, coach, console, and persist to achieve the extraordinary. My recommendations to apply in your own organization are one, ensure your donors are genuinely engaged part of your community that are alongside you and your organization for the ups and the downs and everything in between. Two, have the courage to ask and keep asking. Three, it is a team of people who sit behind these stories and most stories of how we raised it. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au. For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.